Hello. I am a robot. You are listening to an echo of glory. A 200% podcast. Hello everybody, and welcome to the 16th episode of An Echo of Glory, a 200% podcast. My name is Ian King, and over the course of this series I'll be telling you the history of football in England and Wales, tracing the story of the game from the mob game of the Middle Ages through to the modern day. On the 15th of April 1989, tragedy struck football yet again an eminently avoidable disaster that was created by a combination of structural failure, contempt for football supporters and incompetent policing. And as though this wasn't enough, those ultimately responsible for the safety of the public and those reporting on it colluded, not only to cover up their own malfeasance, but to effectively blame those who were killed that day for their own deaths. It would take more than two decades for the truth of what happened that day to finally be formally recognised. This is the story of the Hillsborough disaster. Fences started to be erected around pitches in British football grounds in the middle of the 1970s, a solution which seemed more concerned with keeping football hooliganism out of the public eye than with actually addressing its root causes or the complex matter of crowd management at major sporting events. This policy of containment would come to characterise the next decade and a half of the treatment of football supporters at matches. Fenced in and segregated, Treated as a problem to be dealt with rather than paying customers, the majority paid heavily for the misbehaviour of what was always a minority, and by the middle of the 1980s, it felt as though even this policy was failing. Keeping crowd violence off pitches didn't cauterise the violence in any meaningful sense. It merely moved elsewhere. Out of sight, out of mind seemed to be the prevailing attitude, and it continued to grow becoming all the more visible as crowds continued to shrink. And the FA's attitude towards fences was clear. When Everton beat Southampton by a goal to nil at Highbury in the semi-final of the 1984 FA Cup, there was a pitch invasion which resulted in fighting and more than 80 arrests. When Arsenal refused to put fences up around their pitch afterwards, they were crossed off the list for hosting any further FA Cup semi-finals by the FA. Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield had long been considered one of the jewels in the crown of stadium architecture in this country. When its 10,000-seater cantilevered North Stand was built at a cost of £150,000 in 1962, it became the only football stadium in the country to warrant a mention in buildings of England, 
Sir Nikolaus Pevsner's otherwise exhaustive guide to the architecture of this country. It hosted a World Cup quarter-final in 1966 and was the only stadium to increase its capacity following the 1975 Safety of Sports Grounds Act, from 50,000 to 55,000, after a roof was added to its cop end in 1986. Yet Hillsborough had its problems. At the 1981 FA Cup semi-final between Tottenham Hotspur and Wolverhampton Wanderers, 38 supporters suffered injuries, including broken arms, a broken leg and stitches, after overcrowding at the Leppings Lane end of the ground forced supporters over the fences and onto the pitch. Prior to the match, there had been heavy congestion outside the turnstiles, and once the scale of the overcrowding became clear, two perimeter gates were opened to let fans out. Between 100 and 250 fans were estimated to have moved out of the terrace, and it emerged that the stipulated capacity of the terrace may have been exceeded by 350 people. Following this incident, the terrace at the Leppings Lane end of Hillsborough was divided into three pens. There were similar problems there during the 1986-87 season. Serious overcrowding was observed at the FA Cup quarter-final between Sheffield Wednesday and Coventry City, and again during the semi-final between Coventry City and Leeds United, which was also played there. Leeds were assigned the Leppings Lane end of the ground for this match. One Leeds fan described this organisation at the turnstiles and no stewarding or police direction inside the stadium, resulting in the crowd in one enclosure becoming so compressed that he was at times unable to raise and clap his hands. Other accounts told of fans having to be pulled to safety from above. With the benefit of hindsight, the most obvious warnings of the potential issues came with the 1988 FA Cup semi-final played at the stadium between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest, also with Liverpool supporters packed into the Leppings Lane end of the stadium. A fan who attended the match said he freed himself from a central pen at half-time because he feared for his safety. Harry Whittle wrote a letter of complaint to Ted Croker, then the secretary of the Football Association, but he did not receive a reply. Whittle stated that during the first half, he became uncomfortable with the density of crowd in the Liverpool end, and he decided to leave when his umbrella snapped on a barrier. At half-time, he stood next to one side of the stands and listened to the match, and he described how the entire area in which he was located was congested to a point at which it was impossible for him to move. He wrote, I will emphasise that my concern over safety related to the sheer numbers admitted and not to the crowd behaviour, which was good. My concern over safety was such, at times it was impossible to breathe, that at half-time, when there was movement for toilets and refreshments etc, I managed to extricate myself from the terrace, having taken the view that my personal safety was more important than watching the second half. It would therefore be helpful if you could please let me know how such overcrowding, with a direct impact on crowd safety, was allowed to happen. Despite these clear warnings though, the FA decided that there was no risk attached to Hillsborough hosting another FA Cup semi-final between the same two clubs, with the same sets of supporters, at the same ends of the ground the following year. 
Liverpool had plenty of reason to feel confident going into their 1989 FA Cup semi-final against Nottingham Forest there. They were going into the match off the back of having won their last nine consecutive league matches and they were unbeaten in all competitions since New Year's Day, while their FA Cup run had seen them score 12 goals and concede just two. On top of this, of course, they'd beaten Forest by two goals to one in the previous year's match. FA Cup semi-finals were still not shown live on the television in England in 1989, so that year's semi-finals, the other between Everton and Norwich City, was being played at Villa Park at the same time, was normal 3pm kickoffs on a Saturday afternoon. The Embassy World Snooker Championship was also starting on the same day, and both were being covered by the BBC, whose Saturday afternoon edition of Grandstand looked forward to both. Two of our greatest sporting events dominate Grandstand today. One of them is only just beginning, the other is reaching its climax. It's FA Cup semi-final day and Hillsborough, as it has so often before, provides an impressive setting for Liverpool versus Nottingham Forest. A repeat of last season's enthralling semi at the same venue. Aldridge is there! It was a warm, sunny spring afternoon in Sheffield. Many supporters wished to enjoy the day out and were in no hurry to enter the stadium too early. Some were delayed by roadworks whilst crossing the Pennines on the M62 motorway, which resulted in minor traffic congestion, whilst a scheduled train from Liverpool carrying supporters didn't arrive in the city until 2.20. The result of all of this was that between 2.30 and 2.40, there was a large build-up of supporters outside the turnstiles on Leppings Lane, all eager to enter the stadium before the game began. Fifteen minutes before kick-off, BBC commentator John Motson had already noticed the imbalance of distribution of people in the Leppings Lane pens. While rehearsing for the match off-air, he suggested a nearby cameraman look as well. Outside the stadium, a bottleneck developed, with more fans arriving that could be safely filtered through the turnstiles before 3pm. People presenting tickets at the wrong turnstiles, and those who had been refused entry, could not leave because of the crowd behind them blocking them in. 
Fans outside could hear cheering as the teams came out onto the pitch ten minutes before the kickoff, and then at the start of the match. A police constable radio controlled, requesting that the game be delayed by 20 minutes, as it had been two years earlier when Leeds played Coventry there, in order to ensure the safe passage of supporters into the stadium. The request was declined. With an estimated 5,000 fans trying to enter through the turnstiles and increasing safety concerns, the police, to avoid fatalities outside the ground, opened the large exit gate that ordinarily permitted the free flow of supporters departing the stadium. Two further gates were subsequently opened to relieve pressure. After an initial rush, thousands of supporters entered the stadium steadily at a fast walk. Those who entered through this gate entered a narrow tunnel leading from the rear of the terrace into two overcrowded central pens, creating pressure at the front. Hundreds of people were pressed against one another in the fencing by the weight of the crowd behind them. People entering were unaware of the problems at the front. Police or stewards were usually stood at the entrance to the tunnel and when the central pens reached capacity, they directed fans to the side pens. But on this occasion, for reasons never fully explained, they were absent. The match began as scheduled at 3pm with fans still streaming into the central pens from the rear entrance tunnel. For some time, the problems at the front of the Liverpool central goal pens went largely unnoticed, except by those inside them and a few police at that end of the pitch. With Liverpool defending that end in the first half, goalkeeper Bruce Grobelar reported that fans behind him were pleading for help as the situation worsened. The police at first attempted to stop fans from spilling out of the pens, some believing this to be a pitch invasion. At approximately 3.04pm, a shot from Liverpool's Peter Beardsley hit the Nottingham Forest crossbar. Possibly connected to this incident, a surge in Pen 3 caused one of its metal crash barriers to give way. South Yorkshire Police Superintendent Greenwood, the ground commander, realised the situation and ran onto the pitch to gain referee Ray Lewis's attention. Lewis stopped the match 90 seconds after Beardsley's shot as fans climbed the fence in an effort to escape the crush and went onto the track surrounding the pitch. By this time, a small gate in the fence had been forced open and some fans escaped via this route as others continued to climb over the fencing. Other fans were pulled to safety by fans in the west stand above the Leppings Lane Terrace The intensity of the crush broke more crush barriers on the terraces. Holes in the perimeter fencing were made by fans desperately attempting to rescue others. The crowd in the Lippings Lane stand spilled over the fences and onto the pitch, where the many injured and traumatised fans who were climbed to safety congregated. Players from both teams returned to their dressing rooms and were told that there would be a 30-minute postponement. Those still trapped in the pens were packed so tightly that many victims died of compressive asphyxia while standing. Meanwhile, on the pitch, police, stewards and members of the St John's Ambulance Service were overwhelmed. Many uninjured fans assisted the injured. Several attempted CPR and others tore down advertising housing to use as stretchers. Chief Superintendent John Nesbitt of South Yorkshire Police later briefed Michael Shersby MP that leaving the rescue to the fans was a deliberate strategy. He was quoted as saying, 
we let the fans help so that they would not take out their frustration on the police at a Police Federation conference. As mentioned previously, the match was not being covered live by the BBC, but it was being shown live by the Irish television channel RTE, whose commentator George Hamilton and co-commentator Johnny Giles found themselves in the position of having to try to make sense of the rapidly unravelling situation to their audience. Six minutes of the match gone, no goal. There's the uh, Graham Kelly of the FA, the secretary of the FA, Formerly the Secretary of the Football League. Here to keep an eye on proceedings. This is very unfortunate. I think what happened there, George, behind the goals, the crowd looked as if they were pushing forward and they were getting crushed near the front. And I think the police opened the gates to relieve, uh, just to release them too and relieve the pressure on the people in front. So I don't know what's... Uh, they shouldn't be overcrowded because it, the, if the tickets were distributed and allocated properly, they shouldn't be overcrowding like this, should they? Well, that's absolutely true, and in this day and age, they do really make extra certain that uh, tickets only go where they're supposed to go, but it's quite obvious there that some of those fans have been injured in the crush behind the goal. Of course, the players want to get on with it, but uh, they're being taken from the field of play. The referee has stopped the game, and it won't resume until the problems behind that goal have been sorted out. Incredible scenes, as you can see. And still the crowd sways. Of course, it's a very dangerous situation. I tell you, they're not out of trouble there by any means because the police are trying to get the crowd at the front to push back towards the, the, the back there, but they're not really doing so. And they're keeping the pressure very much on the, on the crowd at front. I wouldn't like to be in that crowd, that's for sure, at the front of that ground. This uh, situation, of course, uh, fraught with danger. I mean, the crowds are corralled these days in football stadia and if there is any pressure on from the crowd behind there simply is nowhere for those at the front to go the bbc switched their grandstand coverage over to hillsborough where john motson and co-commentator jimmy hill found themselves in a similar situation to hamilton and giles with des lynham who was pitch side finding himself providing occasional further reporting both the BBC and RTE commentary teams initially stated that a gate had been broken down, which indicated that a decision to lie about the cause of the disaster had been taken very early on indeed. Both teams did note the lack of ambulances coming into the stadium in the minutes after the scale of disaster started to become clear, erroneously but entirely understandably concluding that this indicated that there was a possibility that the problems might not be that serious. To their considerable credit, though, both teams remained open-minded throughout their live broadcast, making several references to the fact that there was no suggestion that what had happened was related to hooliganism and, in the case of Lynham's pitch-side reporting, making clear that he had spoken to Liverpool supporters who had told him in no uncertain terms that the gate had been opened by the police. Well, John, I've uh, been hearing the points of view of so many Liverpool fans who've come past me over the last few minutes. I'm in the tunnel at the moment, and there are people in tears here and people who don't understand the situation. There's been no violence as far as the Liverpool fans are concerned. They simply said they got the wrong end of the ground, that there were too many people given tickets for that end of the ground. And then furthermore, they say that the gates were opened, tickets were not inspected, 
and too many of their fans were allowed into the ground. There are grown men coming by me here in tears, uh, exhausted, troubled, concerned uh, that they're going to get the blame for this again, the Liverpool fans, when their behaviour has been sound and solid and uh, they're just concerned, they're blaming the authorities for opening the gates um, and they weren't told what was going on and there are a lot of people clearly have been hurt, several have seen them and, the, 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 and you can hear them now uh, and uh, there have been a lot of people injured and some are very, very concerned for their friends. Initially, there was little reaction that could be offered other than dumb horror that such a tragedy had come to pass at a football match involving English clubs yet again. Perhaps the most poignant words of the entire day came at the end of BBC Radio's broadcast of the match, when veteran commentator Peter Jones offered his summation of the afternoon. A beautiful eulogy, delivered tremulously and before anybody knew very much about what had happened. Jones had been present at the Heisel Stadium four years earlier, when tragedy had struck before. It is said that he never really recovered from this, either physically or emotionally. And he died less than a year later, collapsing during the boat race while still working for the BBC. He was 60 years old. Well, I think the biggest irony is that the sun is shining now and Hillsborough's quiet and over there to the left, the green Yorkshire hills. And who would have known that 74 people would die here in the stadium this afternoon? I don't necessarily want to reflect on Heisel, but I was there that night broadcasting with Emlyn Hughes and he was sitting behind me this afternoon. And after half an hour of watching stretchers going out and oxygen cylinders being brought in and ambulance sirens screaming, he touched me on the shoulder and he said, I can't take any more and Hemlin Hughes left. And two other items I just think of sitting here now in the sunshine. Two items. One, that still reminds me of Heisel. The gymnasium here at Hillsborough is being used as a mortuary for the dead. And at this moment, stewards, just as they did at the Heisel Stadium, have got cartons and little paper bags, and they're gathering up the personal belongings of the spectators, some of whom died, some of whom are now seriously injured in nearby hospitals and the red and white scarves of Liverpool, and red and white bobble hats of Liverpool, and red and white rosettes of Liverpool, and nothing else out there on the enclosure where all the deaths occurred, and the sun shines now. On the television, meanwhile, news reports initially seemed to have difficulty trying to make sense of a disaster that should have been unthinkable in any way whatsoever. The dust had barely settled when, that evening, a stunned audience tuned in to an episode of Match of the Day like no other, with Lineman Hill in black ties attempting to make sense of it all. It's been a black day for football. On a sunny afternoon at Hillsborough, Sheffield, no fewer than 93 football supporters died in the most tragic accident for the sport ever in this country. Jimmy Hill and I were there, and it becomes the sad duty tonight for those of us normally concerned with the lighter side of television reporting to deal with a sombre subject. First of all, of course, our sympathies go to the families of those concerned. But what exactly happened, and vitally important, why? The match, a repeat of last year's FA Cup semi-final between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest, was expected to be another classic. Before it began, though, there were already some indications outside the ground that all was not well. Those already inside were oblivious to these problems. But there was a huge crush outside the Liverpool end, and the police seemed to be getting agitated. FA Cup semi-finals 
are not a rarity at Hillsborough. There is always something of a crush. But on this particular occasion, things seem to be getting somewhat out of hand. Even at this early stage, and perhaps influenced by the Liverpool supporters that he'd spoken to that afternoon, Lynham seemed to instinctively grasp that there was considerably more to all of this than the official line that had already been started to be spun. Bert Millichip of the FA heavily implied that a number of supporters outside the Leppings Lane end of Hillsborough were ticketless, or in receipt of forged tickets. While Graham Kelly said that the FA were in the hands of those who issued safety certificates for such matches. As would later be established, Hillsborough hadn't held a valid safety certificate since 1979. Within hours at the end of the match, Jimmy Hill seemed to have a far better grasp on what had happened than anybody from South Yorkshire Police or the Football Association. Now, Jimmy Hill was alongside me at the match today and, uh, of course, is as horrified like I am and like you are and everybody else is about the whole situation. The extraordinary thing there today, Jimmy, was that we sort of sat back and thought this would be a sort of temporary pause in the proceedings Mm. to begin with, didn't we? We weren't to know of the horrors uh, to come. No idea for some time that that such a disaster had occurred. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've observed football and, and, and everything to do with it for so long. Where does this leave us now? Where does this leave the game, do you think, after something like this? Well, I think the important thing to establish is that it's not hooligan-related. I mean, this wasn't a a direct result of hooliganism. I mean, that's the first thing to substantiate. You can say um, impatience and fanaticism, perhaps, outside the ground for the game, but not direct hooliganism. That's the first thing. And the second thing, not that we want to do the inquiry here tonight, but it does seem logically from where we were sitting that at the start of the game that end was tight but it wasn't impossible Mm. and all of a sudden it appears gates were opened and there wasn't a rush immediately we've heard that but the pressure must have come from somewhere on the back of that central section this early reaction however turned out to be something of a high watermark for the quality of media coverage of the disaster British Television News noted that overseas reporting of the tragedy was focusing on hooliganism when there was no evidence to suggest that anything that happened had anything to do with crowd disorder. But it didn't take long before the bovine British news media started to weigh in with their own hot takes. Within days, the British tabloid media had decided, with no evidence, that this was something that Liverpool supporters had done to themselves. The Daily Star ran a headline stating, Dead fans robbed by drunk thugs. The Daily Mail accused Liverpool fans of being drunk and violent and their actions were vile. And the Daily Express ran a story alleging that police saw sick spectacle of pilfering from the dying. It wasn't just the national press either. The London Evening Standard wrote that, The catastrophe was caused first and foremost by violent enthusiasm for soccer, and in this case the tribal passion of Liverpool supporters who literally killed themselves and others just to be at the game, and published a front-page headline, Police Attack Vile Fans. The Manchester Evening News, meanwhile, wrote that Anfield Army charged onto the terrace behind the goal, many without tickets and the Yorkshire Post wrote that the trampling crush had been started by 
thousands of fans who were latecomers forcing their way into the ground. The Sheffield Star ran the headline Fans in Drunken Attacks on Police and the Wolverhampton Express and Star reported that the match had been cancelled as a result of a pitch invasion in which many fans were injured. At the bottom of this particular sewer, however, was the sun. Four days after the disaster, editor Kelvin McKenzie ordered The Truth as the front page headline, followed by three sub-headlines. Some fans picked pockets of victims, some fans urinated on the brave cops, and some fans beat up PC, giving kiss of life. Mackenzie reportedly spent two hours deciding on which headline to run, his original plan being for You Scum, before deciding on The Truth. The information was provided to the newspaper by Wyatt's news agency in Sheffield. The newspaper cited claims by police inspector Gordon Sykes that Liverpool fans had pickpocketed the dead, as well as other claims made by unnamed police officers and the Conservative MP for Sheffield Hallam, Irvin Patnick. The Daily Express also covered Patnick's fabricated version of events under the headline Police Accused Drunken Fans and also gave Patnick's views, saying that he had told Margaret Thatcher while escorting her on a tour of the ground after the disaster, of the mayhem caused by drunks, and that policemen told him that they were hampered, harassed, punched and kicked. The story accompanying the Sun's headlines claimed, Drunken Liverpool fans viciously attacked rescue workers as they tried to revive victims, and police officers, firemen and ambulance crews were punched, kicked and urinated upon. A quote attributed to an unnamed policeman claimed a partially unclothed dead girl had been verbally abused and that Liverpool fans were openly urinating on us and the bodies of the dead. Mackenzie apologised in 1993, but in 2007 he stated that he had only apologised at the time because Rupert Murdoch had ordered him to. Considering the behaviour of both from start to finish, it is difficult to believe any subsequent apologies that have come from either Mackenzie or The Sun. Following the 2016 verdict of unlawful killing, neither The Sun nor the first print edition of The Times covered the stories on their front pages, with The Sun relegating the story to pages 8 and 9. An apology appeared on page 10, reiterating previous statements that the 1989 headline had been to use their now familiar weasel words, an error of judgment. In the face of growing criticism, The Sun's political editor Tom Newton Dunn defended this decision on Sky News, saying with by now familiar gracelessness that, I don't think it should be all about The Sun. It was not us who committed Hillsborough. Trevor Kavanagh, the political editor at the time of the Hillsborough disaster said that he was not sorry at all about the reporting and was supportive of his former boss Kelvin McKenzie, claiming that we were clearly misled about the events and the authorities, including the police, actively concealed the truth. Fact-checking, it might be argued, is not something traditionally that this particular newspaper is overly troubled by. In February 2017, Liverpool FC issued a ban on Sun journalists from entering their grounds in response to the coverage of Hillsborough by the newspaper. 
Everton followed suit two months later on the eve of the 28th anniversary of the disaster, following a column by McKenzie concerning Everton footballer Ross Barkley. The boycott remains in place on Merseyside to this day. I don't talk with the sun anymore. Sorry, I don't speak with the sun anymore. You can listen. That's, you know what? You, no, no, I know you don't. That's why I say it now. So it's not because um, I'm in Liverpool now. It's because of a um, few things which will happen in the next few days or in the weeks. I don't know. No. No. Yeah, but that's why not. No. I don't know. That's not personal, but I'm still working for the sun, right? So. That's it. You can listen and can write what you want. That's how it is. After the disaster, an inquiry into what happened at Hillsborough was chaired by Lord Chief Justice Taylor, and his report and recommendations were come to shape the future of football in this country. Taylor concluded that policing on the 15th of April broke down, and that although there were other causes, the main reason for the disaster was ultimately a failure of police control. Attention was focused on the decision to open the secondary gates. Moreover, the kick-off should have been delayed, as had been done at other venues and matches. Sheffield Wednesday were criticised for the inadequate number of turnstiles at the Leppings Lane end, and the poor quality of the crush barriers on the terraces. These were all considered respects in which failure by the club contributed to this disaster. Taylor considered that the consumption of alcohol by Liverpool supporters before the match had not been a primary factor and that the emphasis placed on alcohol by the police in the aftermath was inappropriate. There were multiple reports of officers focusing on the matter, including taking the blood alcohol levels of the dead and repeatedly questioning grieving families about their relatives' alcohol consumption. Another conspiracy theory dismissed by Taylor was that of a large number of supporters without tickets or with forged tickets being a factor. Taylor found instead that the total number of people who entered the Leppings Lane end was below the official capacity of the terrace. One of the biggest failures of all had been that no one was there to guide supporters to the two side pens. He also found the police to have been defensive and evasive witnesses who refused to accept any responsibility for what had gone wrong that day and that, for the most part, the quality of their evidence was in inverse proportion to their rank. He concluded that their eagerness to blame fans for being late and drunk and to blame Sheffield Wednesday for failing to monitor the pens gave cause for anxiety as to whether the lessons of the day had even been learnt. Taylor's interim report was published in August 1989 and the final report was published in January 1990. It made 66 recommendations in total, most significantly that all major stadiums convert to being all-steater and that all ticketed spectators should have seats as opposed to some or all being obliged to stand. Although Taylor stopped some way short of stating that terracing was intrinsically unsafe, the Football League banned seating in its top two divisions, giving clubs until August 1994 to replace the terraces. The government subsequently outlawed seating in the top two divisions as well. 
defences came down too, with Taylor stating that the anxiety to protect the sanctity of the pitch caused insufficient attention to be paid to the risk of a crush due to overcrowding. In other words, containment had trumped safety, and the result had been the deaths of almost a 100 people. Even after the interim report was published, though, media coverage continued to conflate Hillsborough with hooliganism, as can be seen from this introduction to Channel 4's Public Eye documentary series in 1989. Lord Justice Taylor writes, I know of no other sport or entertainment in a civilised country in which it is necessary to keep those attending from attacking each other. And the cost is enormous, £10 million a year in London alone, 90% of it at the taxpayer's expense. This is the English disease. Television carries the infection into our homes. At Heysel, the violence brought death. The inquests proved to be, to say the least, controversial. South Yorkshire coroner Dr Stephen Popper limited the main inquests to events up to 3.15 on the day of the disaster, nine minutes after the match was halted and the crowd spilled onto the pitch. Popper said this was because the victims were either dead or brain dead by 3.15pm. The decision angered the families, many of whom felt that the inquests were unable to consider the response of the police and other emergency services after that time. The inquests returned verdicts of accidental death on the 26th of March 1991, much to the dismay of bereaved families who had been anticipating a verdict of unlawful killing or an open verdict and for manslaughter charges to be brought against the officers who had been present at the disaster. Popper, it was said, was too close to the police. By this time, though, the seeds of a campaign were being sown. The Hillsborough Justice Campaign was fighting for the truth of what happened that day. They believed that not only had there been a negligent failure of police control, but also that there had been a systematic cover-up that began almost immediately after the incident occurred. The man in charge of the South Yorkshire Police at Hillsborough that day had been Chief Inspector David Duckinfield, an experienced police officer but inexperienced at handling this kind of event. He was the man who ultimately gave the fatal order for the gates to be opened with no plan in place to filter supporters to the two pens either side of the central one. With inadequate signage, the HJC argued, the layout of the stand meant that it was entirely natural for supporters entering through the open gate to head for the central pen, thereby overcrowding it. Slowly but surely, the cover lifted. In December 1996, ITV broadcast a feature-length drama called Hillsborough, written by Jimmy McGovern, which dramatically increased awareness of what had happened on the 15th of April 1989 and for the Campaign for Justice. Starring Christopher Eccleston, it won the BAFTA Award for Best Single Drama in 1997. There were still dissenting voices, of course, but these seemed increasingly marginalised and out of step with the lion's share of public opinion. Usually politically conservative, 
these critics usually showed off more of their own prejudices than they did knowledge of what happened that day. In 1996, for example, Sir Bernard Ingham, former press secretary to the former Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, caused controversy with his comments about the disaster. In a letter addressed to a victim's parent, Ingham wrote that the disaster was caused by tanked-up yobs. In another letter written to a Liverpool supporter, also written in 1996, Ingham remarked that people should shut up about Hillsborough. On the day of the inquest verdict in 2013, Ingham refused to apologise or respond to the previous comments he made, telling a reporter that, I have nothing to say. The long walk towards justice, however, remained a cruel. In May 1997, when the Labour Party came into office, Home Secretary Jack Straw ordered an investigation. It was carried out by Lord Justice Stuart Smith. The appointment of Stuart Smith was not without controversy. At a meeting in Liverpool with relatives of those involved in Hillsborough in October 1997, he flippantly remarked, Have you got a few of your people, or are they just like the Liverpool fans? Turn up at the last minute. He later apologised for this remark, saying it had not been intended to offend. The terms of reference of his inquiry were limited to new evidence. This meant that evidence such as witness statements which had been altered were considered unadmissible. And he presented his report in February 1998, concluding that there was insufficient evidence for a new inquiry. The establishment, it might be surmised, always looks after itself first. Straw, who would later apologise for having done so, backed Stuart Smith's decision. For the next decade, the arguments rumbled on. David Duckinfield had a private prosecution brought against him, but the jury was unable to reach a verdict. Occasionally, boorish opinion pieces continued to be published, usually in the right-wing press by professional controversialists, including one published by The Spectator, which was written by Simon Heffer, reportedly at the behest of our current Prime Minister, who was the editor of the publication at the time. The turning point finally came about at the time of the 20th anniversary of the disaster, when Andy Burnham, the Culture Secretary, a Liverpudlian and Everton supporter, was heckled at the 20th anniversary commemoration of the disaster at Anfield. Burnham and Secretary of State Angela Regal asked for all files, including those that had been previously kept secret. And in December of the same year, Home Secretary Alan Johnson confirmed that another inquiry would be held, with all documentation being made public. On the 12th of September 2012, the Hillsborough Independent Panel released the results of its inquiry, and they vindicated everything that the campaigners had argued for all along. They concluded that no Liverpool fans were responsible in any way for the disaster, and that its main cause was a lack of police control. Crowd safety was compromised at every level, while overcrowding issues had been recorded two years earlier at the 1987 FA Cup quarter-finals and semi-finals played at Hillsborough. The panel concluded that up to 41 of the 96 who perished might have survived had the emergency services reactions and coordination been improved. This number was based on post-mortem examinations, 
which found some victims may have had heart, lung or blood circulation function for some time after being removed from the crash. The report stated that placing fans who were merely unconscious on their backs rather than in the recovery position would have resulted in their deaths due to obstruction of their airways. 164 witness statements, it was found, had been altered. Of those statements, 116 were amended to remove or change negative comments about South Yorkshire Police. South Yorkshire Police had performed blood alcohol tests on the victims, some of them children, and ran computer checks on the National Police database in an attempt to impugn their reputation. The report concluded that Conservative MP Irvin Patnick had passed inaccurate and untrue information from the police to the press. The panel noted that, despite being dismissed by the Taylor report, the idea that alcohol contributed to the disaster proved remarkably durable. Documents disclosed confirmed that repeated attempts were made to find supporting evidence for alcohol being a factor, and that available evidence was significantly misinterpreted. It noted, The weight placed on alcohol in the face of objective evidence of a pattern of consumption modest for a leisure event was inappropriate. It has since fuelled persistent and unsustainable assertions about drunken fan behaviour. It was, to put it bluntly, a systematic campaign of disinformation and slurs, created almost from the moment that the tragedy had occurred, seeking to blame victims for their own deaths in order to deflect blame from those charged with the jobs of keeping spectators safe. Apologies rained down from the sky, from the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition, from Sheffield Wednesday Football Club, from South Yorkshire Police. Norman Bettison resigned with immediate effect as Chief Constable of West Yorkshire Police after Maria Eagle MP accused him of boasting of concocting a story that all Liverpool fans were drunk and that police were afraid they were going to break down the gates and decided to open them. Bettison denied the claims. On the day of the tragedy, he'd been at Hillsborough in a non-official capacity but had been involved in attempts to control the crowd in its immediate aftermath. He was later seconded to an internal review group within South Yorkshire Police, whose official job was liaising with regards to issues associated with Hillsborough. Later described as a black propaganda unit, the media output included a 30-minute film narrated by Bettison that was shown to MPs during a visit by the South Yorkshire Police to Westminster in which he made the claims of which Eagle would accused him of in the first place. The High Court quashed the verdicts of the original inquests and ordered fresh ones to be held, and in April 2016, the jury returned a verdict of unlawful killing in respect of all 96 victims, by a majority verdict of 7-2. to two. Andy Burnham's speech to Parliament that evening spoke for the people of Liverpool and the overwhelming majority of supporters of all clubs. Thank you, Mr Speaker, and I thank the Home Secretary for her powerful statement and for her kind words. At long last, justice for the 96, for their families, for all Liverpool supporters, for an entire city. But it took too long in coming, and the struggle for it took too great a toll on too many. Now those responsible must be held to account 
for 96 unlawful deaths and a 27-year cover-up. Thankfully, the jury saw through the lies, and I am sure, repeating what my, the, my right and more friend said, the Home Secretary, that this House will join me in thanking the jury for their devotion to this task and giving two years of their lives to this important public duty. Charges were brought against Norman Bettison, but they were dropped as the Crown Prosecution Service felt that there was insufficient evidence to have a realistic chance of a conviction. The death of two witnesses and contradiction in the evidence of others were cited as part of the reason for the decision. Graham Mackrell, the former Sheffield Wednesday Club secretary, was fined £6,500 with costs of £5,000 for his role in the tragedy. But both Mackrell and David Duckenfield were found not guilty of gross negligence manslaughter. All of this leaves the campaign for justice in something of a no-man's land. On the one hand, the Hillsborough Justice campaign has been utterly vindicated. For years, campaigners and Liverpool supporters more generally were systematically slurred. The extent of this is now public knowledge, and anybody who continues to deny or mitigate it is really only lying to themselves. And the eventual verdicts of unlawful killing at the inquests have been a powerful reminder of what actually happened that day. On the other hand though, despite the verdicts of unlawful killing, and despite the now widespread acceptance that Liverpool supporters were not to blame that day, still less those who actually died, there remain gaps in the records. And the legal machinations haven't ended yet either. Those due to appear in court this year included the former Chief Superintendent David Denton and ex-detective Inspector Alan Foster. Both worked for the South Yorkshire Police and are charged with perverting the course of public justice. The allegations are linked to changes made to witness statements following the disaster. Peter Metcalf, the solicitor who acted for South Yorkshire Police during the Taylor inquiry and the first inquest into disaster, also faces the same accusation. Each indicated that they were plead not guilty when they appeared at Warrington Magistrates Court in August 2018. This means that a jury will be selected to hear their trial at Preston Crown Court. The trials were due to start on the 20th of April, but were postponed until the end of February next year because Mr Foster's wife is seriously ill with motor neuron disease and requires near-constant care. So there has been no closure yet, and there remains a feeling that no one has truly been held accountable for the deaths of 96 football supporters whose only crime was to attend a football match. Perhaps the passage of time will turn out to have been too great for justice to be served against any individuals. If nothing else, though, the Hillsborough Justice Campaign can at least satisfy itself with the knowledge that their tirelessness cleared the names of those who died, and of everybody who found themselves trapped in a death trap of a pen in a stadium that was not fit for purpose. And anyone who regularly attended football matches during the 1980s knew that this could have been them. The Hillsborough tragedy might have come about for a conflation of different factors, but all fans knew that they were treated as a problem to be dealt with rather than people to be kept safe, 
We all knew that the government of the time bordered on actively hostile to us and that they were happy to demonise all supporters for the behaviour of a few in order to score cheap political points. And we all knew that they effectively owned a sizeable chunk of the print press who would always find a way of blaming it all on us. Even if it meant lying, even if it meant obfuscation, they didn't care then and there's little evidence to suggest that they wouldn't do exactly the same thing were it to happen again now. The experience of watching football matches would change radically as a result of the events of the 15th of April 1989. Some things, however, never change. Mm -hmm.